Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in various states, efforts to roll back abortion rights are on the rise. Florida, Arizona, and West Virginia are considering banning abortions after 15 weeks. South Dakota, Alabama, Missouri, and Arkansas legislatures have introduced bills that ban all abortions after six weeks. With Roe v. Wade on shaky ground before the conservative-leaning Supreme Court, we'll examine where this new trend will lead. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. State efforts to curtail reproductive rights are on the rise as Florida, Arizona, and West Virginia all consider bills that would ban abortions after 15 weeks. Meanwhile, lawmakers in South Dakota, Alabama, Missouri, and Arkansas have introduced bills that copy SB 8. That's the Texas law that bans all abortions, even in the case of rape or incest, after six weeks, and lets private citizens enforce the ban by suing anyone or who, who aids in a Bets an abortion. According to the Guttmacher Institute, in the last year, 108 laws rolling back reproductive rights have been introduced in state legislatures across the country. As the Supreme Court weighs whether Roe v. Wade will stand, we're going to examine the politics behind these latest measures and where they will lead. Joining us now are Jessica Ahrens. She is senior policy counsel at ACLU. Jessica, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Michelle Goodwin. She is Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the UC Irvine School of Law. Her recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be back with you. So I, I, I thought maybe we could start, ladies, by kind of laying out the state of play here in in. in Maybe even backing up to Roe v. Wade and explaining the history of abortion access in this country. Uh, Michelle, maybe I can start with you. Why are we so focused on this one particular case in America? Well, it's an interesting question, and thank you so much for asking it. You know, if we level set with Roe, it was a seven to two decision, so it wasn't even close in 1973. And five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman was put on the court by Richard Nixon. And the reason why I share that is because it's important to level set for people who think, well, this has always been part of a Republican Party ideology. It hasn't, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also important to note that Prescott Bush, who was the father of George H.W. Bush, was the 
uh, treasurer for Planned Parenthood. So what we see today is uh, very much set apart. It's a kind of fringe kind of partisanship ideology that we see, and it's a very well-oiled machine. But if we dig even deeper into history, so much of this has been about control and power over people's bodies. And of course, we could go all the way back to slavery and thinking about control over the reproductive capacities of Black women as being something that was instantiated in state, federal laws just through Mm -hmm. the mechanisms of slavery. And we could take that right on up through eugenics. But if we are to think about the history of abortion and even think about Roe v. Wade, what Justice Blackman said is that, and it was true, that abortion had not always been criminalized and illegal in the United States. It had not been. And it really wasn't until the time of nearly around the time of the Civil War in which abortion becomes um, an issue. And the people who are leading the campaign against abortion are using mechanisms of racism to instantiate that. And they're saying that white women are needed to spread their loins north, east, south, and west, this deep concern about the browning and blackening of this country that um, was where a system of slavery was about to fail. And there's so much more that we could share about that. But I think it's important that we understand the kind of political um, mechanisms of this that have never been about concern and care about women's health. It's never been about the concern and care of uh, fetal development. It's never been about the concern of babies born afterwards. Instead, it's been political expedience, which we can tie to every type of campaign that has been related to regulating reproduction. Um, and that, But Roe comes down on, on a privacy question, right, more than the underlying question. I'll stick with you, Michelle, since, since you are a law professor. I mean, what was that? De- what did that decision say? And, so, and sort of how are we now looking at it through that prism when we talk about the politics of, you know, the laws that we're seeing passed in a lot of these states? Sure. Well, let's also think about Roe as a point of evolution and not just as the beginning point. So, so much conversation about Roe and the way in which it's been pitted in politics is that look at this extreme and alarmist thing that took place with the United States Supreme Court that somehow um, never could be reflected in the Constitution, which is ridiculous because the Constitution itself speaks to privacy, speaks to autonomy, speaks to liberty, right? That is fundamental and foundational within the 14th Amendment. And one can even find that within the Fifth Amendment vis-a-vis the federal government, um, these notions of independence, liberty, equality, et cetera, um, due process. But I would like for us to think about Roe as actually having been on an evolution. If we look back to Skinner v. Oklahoma, It's a case in which the United States Supreme Court speaks in robust ways about the importance of reproductive autonomy and that states should not be encroaching upon it. Michelle is cutting out here. Um, uh, Jessica, are you there? So no worries. Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, if we look back to Skinner v. Oklahoma and we see that the United States Supreme Court is using language of human rights connected to bodily autonomy with regard to uh, reproduction and people being able to have control over their own bodies. And it's a case that involves an Oklahoma state law 
that provides for the coercive sterilization of people who are considered petty thieves. And there was a person who was a chicken thief and who was about to be relegated under this law to not being able to have a reproductive future. And if you think about that, Roe fits within a history from 30 years before where the Supreme Court is speaking in that way, then to Griswold v. Connecticut, where the court strikes down a Connecticut law that denies married couples the ability to be able to use contraception. And then Eisenstadt v. Baird, which allows single people uh, to be able to use contraception. And then comes Roe. And one last point that I'd like to make, just so that we really understand this history. Before Roe v. Wade is decided, there is a case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg took up at the ACLU, and she talked about this in her Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And it's a case that involves a captain in the military, Captain Strzok, Kathy Strzok. And she's a person who's in the military, and the military wants her to have an abortion. She's pregnant and she wants to be able to keep her pregnancy. And the military tells her the only way that you stay in the military is that you have an abortion. We want you to have an abortion. Then you can stay in the military. And again, if we understand all of that, then it's all about power and control. So abortions were even taking place um, within the United States military, even before Roe v. Wade was decided. Wow. Jessica Ahrens, I want to bring you in here, uh, ACLU Senior Policy Council, focusing on reproductive rights. You know, it feels like we are at an inflection point um, after last year's oral arguments and a lot of the laws that we're going to get into. Did you see this coming? I mean, is it is it about the Supreme Court and its rightward drift or are there other sort of political or societal factors at play? Well, there are a number of factors at play, but yes, um, we have we have seen the writing on the wall for some time. First, I think it's important to remember that the promise of Roe has never been fulfilled for all people who can become pregnant. Um, for a brief period of time, I think Roe was able to function as it was intended after it was decided, but quickly uh, abortion opponents swooped in and more conservative elements were able to find ways to diminish access to abortion care in this country. And there has been this chipping away over time. Uh, But for the last decade, especially the fight for abortion rights has been in the states. And as you mentioned, you know, we, we see hundreds of measures to restrict or ban abortion introduced every year. More than 100 such measures actually became law last year. And for a long time, we've been able to kind of rely on the court system to block many, uh, you know, the most extreme uh, of these laws, um, ones that would, you know, try to ban abortion um, throughout pregnancy or at specific points in pregnancy. But nevertheless, um, many states that are hostile to abortion rights have been able to eliminate access to abortion care or impose obstacles that patients had to try to surmount. Um, And that included denying coverage for abortion care in public and private health insurance plans. That includes um, waiting periods and having to listen to state mandated scripts that purport to be, you know, counseling people about their options, but really are designed to shame and guilt patients and make them change, coerce their decision. Um, we also, you know, have seen um, 
what we call trap laws, these targeted regulations of abortion providers, these, these regulations of abortion clinics that are filled with medically unnecessary restrictions that do nothing to protect patient health and instead increase costs and push care out of reach. And so already for years, there are groups of patients who have had to um, just jump through a ridiculously high number of loops in order to obtain the abortion care they want or be denied that care and turned away. And we have seen that when people are turned away from the abortion care they seek, um, that really affects their economic and, and, and well-being and their health in adverse ways. It can have negative impacts on the children they do have um, and, and really um, undermines family health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is already the state of play. That said, we are now at a crisis point um, where half the states are poised to ban abortion if the Supreme Court allows them to. And the Supreme Court is very likely to rule later this year, probably at the end of June, in a way that will either explicitly overturn Roe or do mortal damage to Roe and and allow um, many of these states to, to either ban abortion outright or at a point in pregnancy where um, even more people are going to be denied access to the essential health care they need. We are going to get into those laws and, 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 you know, the states that are passing them after a short break. But I mean, quickly, is that I, I think the figure I've heard is roughly half of states uh, y'all believe would either ban or seriously restrict if Roe is overturned or even chipped away at? So those right. laws are already poised to go into effect if yeah. Roe um, is somehow overturned by the Supreme Court. Many of these are like trigger laws written with that assumption that it, that, that could happen. All right. We are talking to Jessica Aaron. She is ACLU Senior Policy Counsel focusing on reproductive rights. And Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Um, I'm Marisa Lagos. And for Mina Kim, we are talking about reproductive rights and the cases before the Supreme Courts and the laws uh, being put on the books in many states. Um, What are your concerns about efforts to curtail reproductive rights? Do you think abortion will be an issue that brings out voters in the midterms? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. We are talking about efforts across the U.S. at the state level to curtail reproductive rights with Jessica Ahrens. She's senior policy counsel focusing on reproductive rights and chancellor's professor at UC Irvine School of Law, Michelle Goodwin. Uh, we're also going to be joined in a moment by Jessica Pickney. She's executive director at Access Reproductive Justice. Um Before we get to that, I have a couple of listener comments. Noelle tweets, women need to take control of their own abortions and not rely on courts and the government to help. First, robust medication abortions when possible. Second, underground railroad-style transport of patients to abortion clinic states. Uh, We'll probably talk about some of that in a little bit. Um, And then Alex writes, Republicans care greatly about every fetus right up until the moment it's born. From that point forward, the mother forced to bear an unwanted child is to be denied any assistance. And if she does receive any, she's immediately unveiled, reviled as a welfare queen. It is deeply hypocritical and deeply unchristian. And Jessica, before we get into some of these laws, um, Alex brought up a point that I had a question about, too, which is, have are any of these states we're talking about expanding programs to support women who are? are forced to to carry uh, a pregnancy? Uh, generally, no. I mean, reports have been done that show that the states most like that are trying um, the most aggressively to eliminate access to abortion care are likewise the states that provide little to no supports for um, for parents and families um, and, and usually have the worst outcomes and the worst indicators of health and economic well-being for for parents for mothers and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that said, I just also want to say that there are dignitary harms involved in, in forcing someone to uh, carry a pregnancy to term against their will, to become a parent against their will. And so, um, yes, it shows the hypocrisy of many of these states that claim to be trying to protect children, um, but but then do nothing to actually support the well-being of families, especially low-income families and families of color. Um, but but nevertheless, even if they were providing those supports, as they should, they absolutely should be providing supports to so families can thrive. But even if they were, it would not be a justification for banning abortion access. Absolutely, Michelle. Let's talk a little bit about the case before the Supreme Court because I feel like there's been so much attention on the very draconian Texas law, but. But the Mississippi case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women Health, is a 15-week ban. Is there a reason from a legal perspective that that's how that law was crafted and that that's the one that made it to the Supreme Court? Well, let's be clear. So did the SB8 law make its way to the Supreme Court and quite disappointingly through shadow docket and then later on with a deeper review, um, no significant relief, um, anything other than that for the folks in Texas. But yes, what we see between these laws and everything around it and and so much wonderful um, information shared by Jessica here is that there has been an effort to try to find the right space to lodge into with the dismantling of Roe v. Wade. We must understand these as being myriad attempts at the chip away of Roe v. Wade and trying to find the right ledge point with the U.S. Supreme Court. So this Mississippi law, it's a 15-week ban, which was enjoined by Judge Carlton Reeves, a federal judge in Mississippi, in a brilliant uh, order where the footnotes are absolutely worth reading. So this 15-week ban Uh, It also provides no exceptions for cases of rape or for incest. It doesn't have the 
Texas law, which provides incentives and bounties for people who want to hunt down people who are aiding and abetting and terminating a pregnancy. But it's important to understand that it is a drastic departure from Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey because it triggers banning abortions before the third uh, trimester. And this is a great, significant departure. And it's worth noting that in Mississippi, there's only one abortion clinic that remains. And as Judge Carlton Reeves wrote in this opinion, that what the Mississippi state legislature did was a gaslighting Mm -hmm. of the women in that state. And he cites and quotes Fannie Lou Hamer and Mississippi's horrific history of its disregard for the lives of women generally and black women specifically. And he talks about these histories of coercive and forced sterilizations in Mississippi and the disenfranchisement historically of black women in that state, leading to the conclusion, how in the world could this be anything about uplifting, protecting, um, or caring for black women in the state, which were the arguments that were made from the state of Mississippi, that this was about health care and protection of the women in that state. Wow. You brought up the lack of an exception for rape or incest. This is also a playbook we're seeing in other states. I know Florida passed uh, a ban on abortion after 15 weeks that also includes no exception. And Michelle, you've written publicly with your own, about your own experience um, with abortion after your father raped you at age 12. Can you just talk a little bit about what you said in that powerful op-ed and, and, and what you know, the messages that you have as somebody who obviously understands the legality and, and the sort of policy around this, but has also dealt with it on such a personal level. Well, I think what's important to understand is that the departure that we see in Texas and Florida and other places is something that we would not have seen before, that there were people who were anti-abortion but would not have come close to the flames of denying individuals who've been raped um, or who have experienced incest from being able to terminate those pregnancies. And so this is a dramatic departure. It's a real immoral kind of departure, but it lets us understand just where we are now and what this means in the lives of people who suffer through this in the United States is something that the Supreme Court didn't even speak to uh, when the oral arguments took place in the Dobbs case on December the 1st. There is a shaming and a taboo that is around this, but I think it's important that if members of the Supreme Court Um, are vested in the protection of all people in the United States as they hear arguments in cases such as this, as they evaluate how the Constitution applies to these cases, then they have to look at what these issues absolutely mean on the ground. And we can't engage in sophistry here like Governor Abbott and the claim that somehow he just tracked down rapists and take care of these things so that we don't have to worry about people who've suffered from rape or incest. But These are important matters um, that we still need to talk about, that we don't spend enough time in our country uh, really dealing with. And I guess the final point that I'd make about that is something that uh, comes to mind from Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case. In that case, one of the prongs of the law that was proposed in Pennsylvania was about the disclosure to husbands when a wife would want to terminate a pregnancy. And Justice O'Connor spoke in that case and then later in interviews about the level of abuse that can come from that, 
the importance of paying attention to domestic violence, the importance of paying attention to people's real lived lives and not those that are just imagined by legislators. And this is what we're missing from the conversations about these anti-abortion bills. We're missing a significant and serious conversation about how these impact the lives of people who are as young as 10 and 11 years old in this country. Absolutely. I'm going to bring in a caller. Uh, Joanna is calling from Stanford. Joanna, go ahead. Uh, Yes. Hi, my name is Joanna, and uh, I just want to say at the outset that I absolutely love NPR. I've supported NPR for a decade, and as a public radio listener, I'm just really blown away by how many times there are shows about abortion, uh, whether it be The Takeaway or now Forum Today, where every single time there is not one minute given to any voice on the other side of this issue. Every single person you interview is just talking about this in the framing of pro-choice activists. And there is not even any opportunity for anyone who is pro-life to say anything and even to build bridges with with pro-choice people, right? So I've been pro-life all my life. I'm a mother of two. The idea that it was at one point legal for me to end the life of my children just because they were located inside my uterus is disgusting to me, is appalling to me. And I think at the same time that we have to speak the same language because right now when I listen to your show, and I know people like me listen to your show, there is just no way to listen it without being enraged and wanting to turn it off. So I really feel as journalists it is your mission to bring in people from the other side and to try to find common points that we can all agree on. For example, like it was brought up in your report, you know, to empower women to make the choice that they want to make, right? And there are so many situations where women are coerced into abortion or because they don't see any way out. They don't think that they can raise their children even if they would want to have them. So I just I implore you in the future, if you could please also interview okay. people from the other side of this yeah. issue. No, thank you, Joanna. Wonderful. I appreciate that. Um Michelle, you know, we do know overall that the American public says they support making abortion legal, but it does get squishier when you get into details. And, you know, a lot of people who might consider themselves pro-choice may not be comfortable talking about abortion. I mean, this is a very touchy subject. I guess what's your response to Joanna? I mean, is there common ground to be found here? So so I'm glad that those issues were raised so that we could talk about them. And one of the issues that's <clears throat> overlooked is um, relates to health. A person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it. So when we think about um, being in the position of caring about life, loving life, um, then we have to think about what this means for people what this means for people um, who are pregnant in the United States. Reports were just released today about the glaring rates of maternal mortality in the United States. Mm -hmm. A black woman um, in the United States nationally is nearly four times more likely than a white counterpart to die by carrying a pregnancy to term. And if you look at specific counties throughout the United States and you see that rate of death as being 10 times more likely 15 times more likely, 17 times more likely. And so then when we begin to ask fundamental questions related to science and health, whose lives do we care for? And we have to ask, is it reasonable then 
if you're faced with a position where you're 14 times more likely to die by being coerced by the state to take an option, is that reasonable? Is that just? Is that humane for the state to coerce you into a position where you're 14 times more likely to die? And I think if it was put that way, I'd love to hear how people would answer that question then who consider themselves anti-abortion. Yeah. I want to bring in Jessica Pinkney. Pinkney. She is executive director of Access Reproductive Justice. Uh, Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, your organization is often on the front lines of the of the conversation we were just having, which is around, you know, having these conversations around reproductive health, helping women make what decision is right for them. And before we get into how y'all are kind of dealing with this exact political moment, um, I'm curious, like, what is your advice for how to talk about this with maybe friends or family who may not be comfortable with it as, as folks who come from a place of, of supporting pro-choice uh, rights? Right. Well, I could not agree more with uh, Dr. Goodwin's comments. I think, um, you know, the, the the data points that she's lifting up are, are um, incredibly important to this conversation. I also wanted to name the University of California, San Francisco's turnaway study, um, which is a long-term study that studied the effects of um, those who were denied a wanted abortion. Um, And we know that denying a person an abortion does truly create economic hardship and insecurity that can last for years, if not a lifetime. Uh, We know that those who were turned away and went on to give birth experienced an increase in household poverty that lasted four plus years relative to those who received an abortion. And that years after an abortion denial, uh, folks were more likely to not have enough money to cover basic living expenses like food, housing, and transportation. So at Access Reproductive Justice, when we're having these conversations with folks, we're really uh, looking at these looking at abortion access in a holistic way because it does affect people's economic security. It affects their their personal livelihood, the livelihood of their families and their communities. And so we're really trying to look at this issue from a holistic approach and make sure that we're talking to folks about their full experience um, as they make this decision. Does that ever involve, I mean, those are all very powerful statistics, but, you know, I think for some people there is a moral question here. I mean, does, does, does that involve that sort of more philosophical conversation? Absolutely. We we support callers every day in accessing abortion care across the state of California and beyond. And uh, our callers each, every single one of them has a unique experience in accessing their abortion. Um, and folks really do uh, span the gamut in terms of their um, opinions on abortion. Um, And at the end of the day, they're coming to us at Access because they know that they're going to get unbiased uh, support in accessing the care that they themselves have determined they desire. Absolutely. I want to bring in a caller um, because I think this is someone you might want to respond to, Jessica. Pat from Marin. Pat, go ahead. Hi, I just want to say first that I really identified with the caller who talked about how much she hated abortion because I hate it too. Um, but, and I think a lot of our conversations should really include some acknowledgement to 
the human beings that end Pat, um, maybe we'll try to get you back on here. We were having some trouble. Um, I think Pat wanted to talk about actually having having an abortion herself. Uh, she told our producers that she lived in Indiana when she got pregnant and that Planned Parenthood actually flew her to New York uh, for a procedure. Um, Jessica Pinckney, I mean, this is something you all are dealing with on the ground right now, right? As these laws pass and just as there's this chilling effect what are we seeing in terms of out-of-state clients in California or in other places? Absolutely. So for access reproductive justice, we do, we operate a health line uh, where folks can call in to receive uh, support in accessing abortion. And we primarily support folks who are in California receiving care in California or those who are outside of the state coming to California to receive care. And we have certainly seen as uh, more draconian laws have gone into effect across the country that folks do have to travel to um, more progressive or, you know, abortion friendly states to access um, their the full range of reproductive health care services that they desire. Jessica, uh, I don't want to cut you off, but I do have Pat back and I wanted to let sure. her. We only have like a couple minutes before the break. Pat, go ahead. I'm so sorry about that. And she's still crackly. Okay, we're going to have to drop that. Uh, Sorry, Jessica. So this is something this is something that's increasing, I assume. um, Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020, um, access supported callers uh, from nine states, including California. And in 2021, we supported callers from 18 states and one country. so we've seen literally a doubling um, of the folks who are who are calling access for this type of support. Um, and of course, since the enactment of SB8 in Texas, uh, we have seen an increase in Texas callers um, who are coming who are coming to California to receive their their care. All right. We're going to pick this up in just a minute. Eileen tweets to the caller who wants to hear from the, quote, other side of the abortion issue. If you're opposed to abortion, don't have one. Use birth control. What gives you the right to tell me I have to carry a pregnancy to term? And uh, another listener tweets, at first I was on the fence about the 15-week mark since 90% of women get an abortion before that time anyways, but then I listened to the Mississippi Supreme Court argument and I learned that the last six to eight weeks is the most dangerous time if an abortion's needed. It also discriminates because you cannot have the same rights as another woman just because of the date you got pregnant. I'm Marisa Lagos. We are talking about efforts across the country to curb reproductive rights. We'll be back after a break. Thanks for being with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We are talking about reproductive rights and efforts across the U.S. to curtail those rights, uh, as well as an uh, expected upcoming Supreme Court decision. With us is Jessica Ahrens, ACLU Senior Policy Counsel, focusing on reproductive rights. Professor Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. And Jessica Pickney, Executive Director at Access Reproductive Justice. Jessica Ahrens, I want to talk to you a little bit about the politics of all this, because there is this smattering of approaches at the state level. And as we mentioned before, we know that, you know, writ large Americans say a majority say that they do support reproductive rights. But it it gets squishy when you get into details. Um, I'm curious if you look at the 15 week bans, for example, being introduced in many of these states, why are they going for that? Why not go for, say, a complete ban with the you know anticipation that Roe could be overturned? Is is there a political calculation here to the way these laws are being written? Well, there's several things going on. First off, I mean, uh, the states that are hostile to abortion rights, the the politicians there have long thrown everything at the wall to see what sticks. And in doing so, they often are able to move the window of what is considered acceptable or reasonable or moderate. And so I think that's what we're seeing here with these 15-week bans. First off, they anticipate that the wind is in their sails and the Supreme Court is about to vote in their favor and allow and, and green light bans at least at 15 weeks in abortion, if not sooner. Um, And so they're kind of rolling the dice and getting ready for that ruling to come out. But at the same time, what we're seeing, um, for instance, in a state like Florida, is that the politicians there are trying to triangulate. And so while they are moving this 15-week ban, they've also introduced a Texas copycat law that would ban abortion at six weeks. Um, And they're doing that um, as a way to position the 15-week ban as somehow more moderate or centrist or reasonable. But let's be clear about a few things. First off, Roe itself was a compromise. So now we're talking about a compromise on top of a compromise. And second of all, there is just nothing reasonable or moderate about abortion bans. Throughout pregnancy, it should be a patient's health and not politics that dictates their access to health care. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Goodwin, what about when we talked specifically about SB8, the Texas law, which I know some other states are copying? I mean, one of the things that got so much attention was this enforcement mechanism that essentially allows private citizens to sue to try to enforce this ban. Is Do you see that as just an attempt to like as a chilling effect on doctors and clinics or how like how should we read that from both a political and sort of legal angle? Well, let's think about that political, legal, health and history, right? All together. Um, it's a page from a playbook that is not unfamiliar to the United States. It's a page from the playbook that we saw in Fugitive Slave um, Acts passed by the U.S. federal government that incentivized bounty hunting, tracking down, surveilling, spying on people um, who would otherwise seek freedom. Mm-hmm. And this law 
in many ways as a kind of replication of that, right? Um, and those were laws, <clears throat> excuse me, that had not been overturned in the United States, laws that had been upheld by our United States Supreme Court as being valid um, in a system that was absolutely nefarious and one of the um, um, stains on our U.S. democracy. And so um, in Texas right now, individuals can sue folks that uh, they perceive to aid or abet a person uh, in the termination of a pregnancy. And to your question, is this about chilling doctors? Well, it's about chilling everybody. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we learned years ago, decades, centuries ago, with Fugitive Slave Acts is that it made everybody afraid, everyone around Black people in cities like Boston, Philadelphia, elsewhere, uh, cities and states where Black people uh, were to be free, but everyone was concerned and fearful about the prospect of tangling with these bounty hunters. And so in Texas, even though we've not seen a lot of, you know, any kind of litigation in this space, it does chill people from being able to talk about these issues. And my my concern there is not just about doctors who may feel handcuffed about this, but at the intimate level, uh, someone who wants to talk to a friend about a pregnancy and the concern about um, being able to have an abortion, who wants to talk to a parent, who wants to talk to a relative, may feel as if they can't because of this law, and they don't want the people in their lives to be implicated and possibly sued if they share about their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of drama that we get from this law. And in that way, it's more than drama. It's just really something that um, hits right at the heart of something that we care about. And that's the First Amendment, the ability to be able to speak freely. And what you see in the Texas law is not just uh, the trampling of abortion rights, but you see fundamental other principles, constitutional principles that are thrown under the bus as well. Absolutely. Um, I want to say, I, I apologize to our caller, Pat. Um, I know she wanted to share her own story, and I'm sorry that we didn't get her to tell it herself. Um, we do have some other comments from listeners. Mary writes, I wish the pro-life movement would take a look at living children, unwanted children, foster children, and children living in poverty that have a very hard path in life. The prospects for these children are quite bleak. Pro-lifers should be focusing their energy on the living who are suffering. Another listener tweets, uh, in response to the anti-abortion call, I respect those who do not believe in abortion, but that does not give them the right to judge women who have abortions. A common ground is access to affordable contraception, but the anti-abortion movement also fights contraception. Um, and Kathleen writes, come on, let's face it, abortion's all about control, not about life. It were about life. All children would have what they need for a productive, happy childhood and life. At 75, I've known friends who had illegal abortions back in the day. My mom was a public health nurse in San Francisco in the 30s. She told us about abolished abortions among the poor women in the city. Wealthy women would always would have abortions performed by discreet doctors. Women will always have abortions. The difference is the poorer the woman, the higher the risk. What else is new? And, and Michelle has on this. Um, but Jessica Pickney, what, what's your personal experience with that in terms of who access reproductive justice is serving and and how, um, you know, socioeconomic factors really play into this access issue? Absolutely. Um, the majority of access reproductive justice's callers are in their 20s, report being low income or having no income at all, 
and identify as Black, Indigenous, people of color. And in the instance of California, um, the majority of our callers are insured under California's Medi-Cal program, which is our state Medicaid program. So we know that this the, uh, that abortion access is a socioeconomic issue. We hear from our callers every day that they're working to make ends meet, and it's just not financially reasonable to bring an additional member into their family. Um, and going back to the to the point um, that was made in one of the the comments um, from a caller. You know, I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, the Guttmacher Institute reports that about 50% of those who have abortions already have children. So this is an issue of people making a determination for themselves about what they need for themselves, their families, their communities to be able to survive and thrive. Um, and so, you know, we hear from our callers every day that um, they're making a decision that's right for themselves in that moment in time. Jessica Aaron. I mean, uh, Jessica Pickney is talking about, you know, providing access in a state like California that has um, pretty strong protections on the books. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about is, regardless of what sort of happens at the Supreme Court this year, what about medical abortion access? Is this a way around potential reversal of, of Roe? And can you talk about what that is and, and like what what are the barriers there within sort of state laws and other restrictions? Sure. Well, medication abortion is a two-drug regimen that has been um, approved by the FDA for over 20 years. It has a stellar 99% safety record. It is safe and effective. Um, and the FDA recently removed what was a, a, a very large barrier to accessing medication abortion uh, by getting rid of a requirement that the medication be picked up from a health facility. So now under the recent FDA ruling, uh, medication, the, the medication involved in a medication abortion can be mailed to a patient at their home. Um, and that is great news in terms of opening up access to care, especially for, uh, especially during a pandemic where a visit to a health facility that is not medically justified could, um, you know, uh, create an unnecessary, unnecessary exposure to COVID infection. Mm. Um, but it also is great news for people who live in rural communities, uh, people with disabilities, and, you know, frankly, people, you know, who are harmed by restrictions on abortion, generally those who already face um, greater health disparities and access to healthcare more generally, um, and that's low-income communities, people of color, immigrants, and and you know so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but so that is great news in terms of that FDA ruling. The problem is that again, the states that are hostile to abortion access have already. Um, uh, been trying to um, undo that progress. Um, many of these states already ban the use of telemedicine for abortion care, um, and they are now trying to pass additional laws requiring in-person visits, multiple in-person visits to the clinic, even though it's not medically justified, um, often requiring ultrasounds or blood tests. Um, it, prohibiting the mailing of medication abortion. Um, and again, just is that, um, uh, adding more layers right. uh, and barriers to care. Is that something that the federal government could overrule? I mean, it seems like there are interstate sort of commerce clause and other things at play. Michelle Goodwin? Well, you know, right now there's legislation before the um, United States um, 
Congress, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would simply codify Roe into Jessica Aaron's point. Uh, Roe was never the North Star, important, but it was never um, a decision that liberated all women to have um, and all people who would be in need of abortion services to be able to get the services that they want. We certainly saw a chipping away at the possibility of that after Roe v. Wade. And so Congress can act. Um, But I want to go back to a question that has been surfacing about um, abortion access and um, people who are Mm anti-abortion. I think under I think the important thing is to have compassion for all people quite honestly, and that these can be, you know, one can have a decision that one does not want to terminate a pregnancy. And a person should be able to continue a pregnancy to term with dignity and respect, something that black women have long wanted in the United States and other communities of color in the United States. Indigenous women, Latinx women have experienced coercive sterilizations in the United States where they have been denied that opportunity to be able to carry pregnancies to term or to even become pregnant because of government policies. And so these really are personal decisions and they should reside within those personal spaces. But then also on the point of abortion, it's typically treated in conversations that the only people who have abortions are the people who support abortion access. And that's also inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I have colleagues and friends who are OBGYNs who perform abortions on people who come to them who identify themselves as being anti-abortion. But they want that medical service and they want it on the day in which they've had it. They want it because they believe that they've perhaps had too many children. They want it because they believe they cannot afford to have more children. They want it because they are in situations of domestic violence and they are able to provide those services, the OBGYNs, because uh, abortion is legal in the United States. And so there are people who identify uh, politically as anti-abortion, who do seek abortions, who get abortions in the United States, and who um, probably appreciate the fact that they have been able to make those decisions for themselves. Absolutely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You are listening to Forum. I'm here for Mina Kim. Um, I want to read a couple of uh, listener comments and bring in one listener. Chris writes, at the age of 18, I lived on my own and unknown to my family became pregnant under unpleasant circumstances. It was the first year abortion was legal. At that time, the women that wanted an abortion went to a clinic. In my case, I had to go to San Francisco from the Central Valley. At the clinic, all the women sat together with a counselor and discussed the circumstances that brought us there. I was surprised with the variety of women that ranged from students to mothers, shy immigrants to loquacious feminists, wealthy and poor. It was a difficult and strange decision to make on my own at that age. In hindsight, it was the right one for me. Subsequently, happily, I became a mother of three when I was ready. To this day, my family does not know that I made this decision, a testament as to how difficult a decision it is to make but it was my decision. And I want to bring up Janet, uh, bring in Janet from Burlingame. Janet, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I grew up in the state of West Virginia, and I'm hearing this, and I just, I, I, I rolled my eyes because I'm thinking, when are they ever going to learn? When I was 14 years old, I was shocked beyond belief when a friend of mine, also 14, described using a coat hanger on herself because it was her only option. There was no other place for her to go to get help, to get an abortion. And, um, you know, there's evidence of uh, uh, abortions in 1515 
or BC, they're always going to happen. It's it, it, uh, that's one thing that I wish people who call themselves pro-choice would understand is that women are, excuse me, pro-life are going to under, would understand is that women are going to do this, whether you like it or not, because it's a choice that they absolutely feel they have to take. And if it's not safe, they are going to turn to horrible means to end the pregnancy. I was fortunate enough to be able to leave the state of West Virginia when I was 18 years old uh, to get an abortion in another state. And um, because, again, there was no place for us to go in the state of West Virginia. And this is just going to create so much hardship for so many women and their children. So that's what I wanted to say. Thanks, Janet. We appreciate your call. Uh, Jessica Pinkney, I mean, how important do you think it is in this moment for women like Janet and our other callers to talk about their own experiences? Absolutely. So our friends that we testify always remind us that everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. And so I think what you're hearing Dr. Goodwin say and what you're hearing from the caller Janet is that uh, we all have it have some whether we ourselves have had an abortion or not, someone in our life has. And um, these these decisions and these experiences become much more easy to understand and we're able to have a lot more a lot more sympathy and respect for individuals making these determinations for themselves when you hear a sister a aunt a family member a cousin whomever describe their situation and their circumstances um, so we always encourage folks to share their stories to the extent that they feel comfortable of course these are personal decisions and you have every right to keep it to yourself but it is really important to understand that we all know somebody who has had an abortion whether we're pro pro or anti-abortion or pro-abortion. So um, yeah, I think the storytelling aspect is really important. It humanizes um, a topic that sometimes feels like it, it lacks, um, lacks that element. Absolutely. We are going to have to leave it there. We have been talking about efforts across the country at the state level to curtail reproductive rights with Chancellor's Professor Michelle Goodwin from UC Irvine School of Law, Jessica Ahrens, ACLU Senior Policy Council focusing on reproductive rights, and Jessica Pigney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice. Thank you so much to our guests and callers and listeners. I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm in for Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.